Greetings, men of the Journey Church. This is Pastor Rob. This week we are listening to chapter 12 of Disciplines of a Godly Man. The chapter title is called The Discipline of Work. Let's listen together and come together on Thursday afternoon on Zoom to pray and discuss this great chapter. Chapter 12, Discipline of Work. Studs Terkel opens his widely acclaimed book, Working, People Talk About What They Do All Day and How They Feel About What They Do, with these words. This book, Being About Work, is by its very nature about violence, to the spirit as well as to the body. It is about ulcers as well as accidents, about shouting matches as well as fistfights, about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is, above all, or beneath all, about daily humiliations. Millions of people regard their work as something they must bear, a living indignity. Their feelings are not without precedent. Herman Melville felt much the same. They talk of dignity, of work, bosh, the dignity is in the leisure. A dark cloud of dissatisfaction blankets today's workforce. Only one-tenth of American workers say they are satisfied with their jobs. For the overwhelming majority, work is dull and meaningless. This pervasive discontent has spawned the paradoxical problems of laziness on the one hand and overwork on the other. Patterson and Kim, in The Day America Told the Truth, tell us that only one in four employees gives his or her best effort on the job, and that about 20% of the average worker's time is wasted, thus producing, in effect, a four-day work week. But though sloth is epidemic, so is overwork. Moonlighting is a way of life for a substantial part of our workforce. This was given classic illustration when the workers at a rubber manufacturing plant in Akron, Ohio, were given six-hour workdays, and over half of them took on a second full or part-time job. The managerial counterpart to workers' moonlighting is the workaholism of those who sublimate everything—family, leisure, friends, church—to career. The depths to which careerism can go is chronicled by Dr. Douglas LeBeer, Senior Fellow of the Project on Technology, Work, and Character in Washington, D.C., who relates the extreme but not uncommon expression of a man who told him that he feared dying, not because of death, but because it would end his career. This mindset has produced an unending list of shallow folk religion epigrams which tout the requisite qualities of successful careers— Discipline. Creativity is 2% inspiration and 98% perspiration. Goals. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Savvy. Success in life comes not from holding a good hand, but from playing a poor hand well. Perseverance. Tough times never last, but tough people do. Vision. Some men dream dreams and ask why. I dream dreams and ask why not. Self-confidence. Believe in God, and you're halfway there. Believe in yourself, and you are three-quarters there. The careerists who espouse the hubris of these credos wrongly think themselves heirs of the Protestant work ethic, but they are anything but that, as we shall see. This delusion takes on personally tragic dimensions because surveys have indicated that work ethics of Christians and non-Christians are virtually identical. At church, they swear allegiance to values informed by creeds and scriptures, but at work, they bow to idols of expedience and career success. Moral camouflage has become de rigueur in the workplace. 
The plain truth is, many Christian men miserably fail in their work ethics either because of sloth or overwork or, ironically, both. What we need is a work ethic which is informed by God's Word and religiously lived out in the workplace and the church. The reason this is so important is that most of us spend 8 to 10 hours of our 16 waking hours at work five or six days a week. So how we work not only reveals who we are, but determines what we are. The Christian discipline of work must be observed de rigueur wherever God has placed us. What the Bible says about work. The scriptural Christian doctrine of work has an exalted origin because it is closely related to the doctrines of the creative energy of God and the image of God in man. We meet God the Creator as a worker in Genesis 1-1 through 2-2. In fact, that entire section is a log of God's work, ending with the statement that, upon completion, He rested from all the work of creating that He had done, 2-2. As Milton expressed it, the planets in their stations listening stood, while the bright pomp ascended jubilant. Open ye everlasting gates, they sung, open ye heavens your living doors, let in the great Creator from His work returned, Magnificent, his six days' work, a world. Paradise Loss 7.563 God's being a worker endows all legitimate work with an intrinsic dignity. The additional teaching of Genesis 1 is that God created man in his own image, 127. We are compelled to understand from this that the image of God in man means man is to be a worker. The way we work will reveal how much we have allowed the image of God to develop in us. There is immense dignity in work and in being workers. Men, you must set this on your hearts. Your work matters to God. A further observation of great importance is that work was given to man before the fall, before sin, before imperfection. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, Genesis 2.8. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 2.15 From this we come to the inescapable conclusion that work is good, despite the modern thinking that it is evil and dehumanizing. David Ben-Gurion, pioneer leader of the modern state of Israel, gave this memorable expression of the innate nobility of work. We do not consider manual work as a curse or a bitter necessity, not even as a means of making a living. We consider it as a high human function, as a basis of human life, the most dignified thing in the life of a human being, and which ought to be free, creative. Men ought to be proud of it. Work under a curse. So we see that God is a worker, and that man, created in God's image, is a worker, and that work is good. But then come the fall and the curse. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. The curse made nature uncooperative, so that work became painful toil, and man had to sweat for a living. Today our working conditions vary. Some sweat more than others. We may be in a better position than some, but the norm for the world is painful toil. Even more, the normal experience of mankind in his labor is a malaise of futility. 
The writer of Ecclesiastes gave this universal expression as he bemoaned his plight from the perspective of one who leaves God out of his life. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, he describes his professional success in acquiring vineyards and gardens and parks and slaves and flocks and treasures. He was greater than all his contemporaries. He was denied nothing his eyes desired. But he concluded in verse 11, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And he reiterates in verse 17, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Men, this is as far as work will take you apart from God. You will engage in it because, though fallen, you are in the image of God and because work is part of the natural order and it will produce its benefits and satisfactions. But it will also be toil and its joys will be ephemeral. Studs Terkel has revealed what has always been true under the sun when God is left out. Work Redeemed There is a Christian view of work which makes God the center of the equation. To be sure, God does not remove the curse and its painful, sweaty toil, but He does replace the meaninglessness. Those who have been saved by faith fall heir to this grand declaration, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 Being His workmanship, we are, as F.F. Bruce translates it, His work of art, His masterpiece. We are the pinnacle of God's creation because, above every other created thing, even angels, we are made in His image. This has mind-boggling possibilities. Beyond this, we have been regenerated, created in Christ Jesus, thus undergoing an even greater second creation. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God's most stupendous creation is man made alive in Christ. To quote Jonathan Edwards, the spiritual life which is reached in the work of conversion is a far greater and more glorious effect than mere being and life. As subjects of Christ's two creations, we are His ultimate workmanship. As His masterworks, we have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Each of us has an eternally designed work assignment, which includes the task, the ability, and a place to serve. Whatever the task to which he has called you, you will be equipped for it as surely as a bird is made for flight. And in doing the works he has called you to do, you will be both more and more his workmanship and more and more your true self. The practical implications of this are stupendous. There is no secular sacred distinction— for all honest work done for the Lord is sacred. Historians agree that Luther's understanding of this revolutionized his life and, indeed, the world of his day. He wrote, Your work is a very sacred matter. God delights in it, and through it He wants to bestow His blessings on you. This praise of work should be inscribed on all tools, on the forehead and the faces that sweat from toiling. There are no first-class and second-class Christians because of their varying jobs. All work is sacramental in nature, be it checking groceries, selling futures, cleaning teeth, driving a street sweeper, teaching, or painting trim. Everything we do ought to be done to the glory of God. Listen to God's call to serve Him. 
So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. You may feel you are in a nothing job. Because of the curse, your job may involve painful toil and yield little job satisfaction. But you can glorify God where you are by your heart attitude. You may feel your occupation is not holy, but it is if you see it so and do it for God's glory. You are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God planned in advance for you. Men, everything about your work must be directed toward Him, your attitudes, your integrity, your intensity, and your skill. The Discipline of Work The disciplines of work are practical disciplines. The scriptures are very explicit here. Energy Both the Old and New Testaments are crystal clear on the necessity of energetic work as opposed to laziness. Proverbs mocks the false wisdom of the lazy. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says there is a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer discreetly. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 12 through 16. See chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. The New Testament epistles likewise disparage all laziness, sort of a spiritual ultra-slimfast for sluggards. Evidently, the Thessalonian church had some brothers who ostensibly lived by faith while they sponged off the church, Christian parasites, we might say. For such, Paul gave explicit advice. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Verse 10 In our Lord's parable of the talents, the master tells the servant who had done nothing with his talent, You wicked, lazy servant. Matthew 25.26 No one has ever been both faithful to God and lazy. It is impossible. But perhaps the most withering epithet comes from Paul. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5.8 There is no escaping it. Godliness is associated with hard work. You cannot be lazy and be a godly employee or employer for that matter. This said, it must be understood that the scriptures do not commend the workaholism that comes from pursuing wealth in a career instead of God's glory. In this respect, it should be noted that the hard-working Puritans were zealous in enforcing Sabbath laws without which employers would have made people work seven days a week. The bottom line for us men is, are we truly hard-working? And if so, are we doing it for God or merely for self? Enthusiasm A second and parallel aspect of the Christian work ethic is enthusiasm. 
Whatever you do, Paul told the Colossians, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. Colossians 3.23 To the Romans, Paul admonished, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Romans 12.11 It is natural, actually quite easy, to be enthusiastic if your work is prominent, but less natural the more hidden it is. As the conductor of a great symphony orchestra once revealed, when asked which was the most difficult instrument to play, second violin, he answered, we can get plenty of first violinists, but to get someone who will play second violin with enthusiasm, that is a problem. And so it is. But actually, doing one's work with enthusiasm, even if hidden, plays for an audience far greater than that of the most famous symphony orchestras or world champion sports teams. If we could but really see this, our enthusiasm would never flag. Wholeheartedness A third aspect of the Christian work ethic, very close to energy and enthusiasm, but nevertheless bearing a distinctive and important nuance, is wholeheartedness. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good He does, whether He is slave or free. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5-8 through 8. If you have ever observed a gym class doing push-ups, you will understand the sense of this verse. The coach orders everyone down and begins to intone, up, down, up, down, and all are following until he looks to the right, because in that moment, the half on the left go on hold until his gaze begins to move back to the left, whereupon they begin to do proper push-ups again, and those on the right go on hold. There are employees who are all action when the boss is around, but otherwise loll around the water cooler. Out of his eye there is no energy, no enthusiasm, no heart. The cheerful wholeheartedness recommended here comes, as before, when one's work is done for the Lord. Men, we are to work as we did as boys when we knew our Father was watching, because He is always. Excellence Lastly, our work must be done with an eye to excellence. Dorothy Sayers said that the church in our time has forgotten that the secular vocation is sacred forgotten that a building must be good architecture before it can be a good church, that a painting must be well painted before it can be a good sacred picture, that work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. Work that is truly Christian is work well done. Genesis 1 logs God's commitment to excellence when it says, God saw all that He had made and it was very good. Verse 31. Christians should always do good work. Christians ought to be the best workers wherever they are. They ought to have the best attitude, the best integrity, and be the best in dependability. If what the pollsters tell us is true, that there is little difference in the work ethics of Christians and non-Christians, we have cause for alarm. If there is no difference, then large numbers of God's children have succumbed to the extremes of laziness and overwork which characterize today's workforce. It also means that vast numbers of Christian lives are spiritually dysfunctional, for it is impossible to dedicate over half one's waking hours, some 80 to 100,000 hours in an average lifetime, to a sub-biblical work ethic and not suffer immense spiritual trauma. We must recover the biblical truth, the Reformation truth, 
that our vocation, be it ever so humble, is a divine calling, and thus be liberated to do it for the glory of God. This alone will take the church out into the world. Men, if you sense you are deficient, you need to do three things. First, take an honest assessment of your life, using the scriptures as a standard as you answer these questions. Do I do my work for the glory of God? Do I honestly work hard? Do I work with enthusiasm? Do I work wholeheartedly? Do I do excellent work? Second, after honest evaluation, confess your sins. And thirdly, commit your work life to the glory of God alone. Will you do this now?